Well, if you were with us last Sunday, Brother Jason Shirk preached in the morning. He was looking forward to preaching at night. We were looking forward to his preaching at night. And I get a text in the afternoon that says, I'm not feeling well and I have a fever. What should I do? I don't think it would be too considerate for me to come, but I can, I can push through. I said, I would agree with the first part of that. It wouldn't be too considerate to come, okay? And I appreciate your sensitivity about that. I think there's more important than pushing through tonight. I think you ought to stay home and see if you can get well and keep the rest of us well. Amen, all God's people said? Amen, amen. So he, he followed the pastoral advice, and he stayed home. And I preached, but I texted back just a few minutes. I said, well, let's just trade. I'll go ahead and preach tonight in your place, and you can preach next Sunday morning in my place if you'd like to do that. And I said, because it is Memorial Day, I would not expect you to preach Memorial Day message. You can preach what you plan to preach tonight, or you can preach something else, whatever you want to preach, but you want to trade. He said, I'd love to do that. So you're on, I'm off. Come on, brother. Okay, we do need to dismiss the kids, uh, ages four years old through fourth grade. If you want to go ahead and head towards the back, you can... Make your way on out to Children's Church. The Straters are taking it this week, and I believe all next month, correct? Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you guys for praying for us. Obviously, you knew Katie was sick already when we came into Sunday last week, but I got it after that. And honestly, it held on all the way until Thursday morning when my fever broke. So it was, it was pretty, pretty rough for a while. So. But uh, we're grateful for the prayers and uh, just the fact that the Lord allowed us to be able to be healthy and be able to be back with you guys today. 
Uh, today we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter. A couple weeks ago we started 1 Peter in Sunday school. We're a couple, about halfway done with the, with the first chapter here. But we started the book of 1 Peter and I uh, wanted to bring a message since this is part of what the Lord's um, had on my heart recently from what we are talking about in Sunday school. We're not going to be going into as much detail as I will in Sunday school, so those who are in my Sunday school class, you're still going to get something when we get to these verses, okay? So, but 1 Peter chapter number 1, and our text is going to be beginning in verse 13, but in order to get there, I want to give you guys the background to the book of 1 Peter, because you have to understand how the whole thing fits together to understand the meaning of the text and the force of the text that we are going to be dealing with today. Verse number 1 of 1 Peter 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So Peter here tells us who he is writing to. And the text says that these are strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That word strangers there is a, is a word that is used to describe an exile. Somebody who is not in their homeland where, where they were born. So you think of a Bhutanese person who comes to the States and settles here. We would call them aliens or we would call them immigrants, right? And we don't mean little green aliens with antennas, okay? But they are people who are not surrounded by the culture that they belong to. So these are strangers. And then in verse number two, it says they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now it's important, actually in, in the Greek text, the word elect is right in front of the word strangers. In our English, it's in the next verse. So it kind of separates our minds. But literally he's saying to the elect strangers. So the fact that these people are strangers is not because they are Bhutanese living in America, but because they are elect. They are born again believers they are strangers among a, a culture that does not associate with them, that does not draw its identity from the same identity that they draw their identity from. So believers in this text are who are being addressed. And as believers, every one of us is an exile in the country that we live in. Now this is, this is America. This is Memorial Day. And as Christians, as exiles, we should be very patriotic. That's one of the things that you will see as we get into 1 Peter later on. But our primary identity is not as an American, as much as it is that I am a Christian. I am a born-again believer. We are the people of God. And that is the focus of the entire book of 1 Peter. And you can see that theme traced throughout the book. In verse 17 of the same chapter, Peter says, And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Your temporary journey here on earth. Pass it in fear. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, if you turn to 2.11, says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Pilgrims, again, they're not those little cute guys with black hats and turkey, th turkey on Thanksgiving, okay? Pilgrims are people who are strangers in the land that they are living in. When the pilgrims came to America, they were strangers here. 
right? Okay, that's, that's the whole point that he's getting across. And then in verse number 12 of the same chapter says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of the, your vis, uh, visitation. We are surrounded by another culture, the culture of the Gentiles that Peter talks about here. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? One of the things that these exiles were facing was persecution. And in the book of 1 Peter specifically, it's what we call soft persecution. Okay? And we can identify with this. In America, have we faced hard persecution where people are dying because of their faith? No, not really. There may, there may be some small circumstances. I think of um, Columbine, the Columbine shooting when I was in high school. Okay? People were killed because of their faith in the Columbine shooting. But since then, it's, it's been very, very, very rare. But one thing we do face in America is ridicule for our faith, right? If you take a stand on homosexuality, you take a stand on uh, gay marriage, you take a stand on transgenderism, you take a stand on any biblical moral issue, abortion, all these different things, you face the ridicule of the culture that we are in because the culture does not identify with our values, okay? And so we face soft persecution is the word for that. Um, in, in the book of 1 Peter, they were facing the ridicule, but they were also facing loss of jobs. They were facing loss of relationships. They were facing loss of goods. People would come in and take their stuff and steal it from them. You know, so they, they were facing this type of persecution because they were exiles in a culture that did not identify with their values. Chapter 4, verse 17, it picks up this theme again. It says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? This is us versus them terminology. Okay, you only have us versus them terminology when you're talking about two different specific groups of people. So Peter is, is identifying the, the people of God as one group and the rest of the world as another group. And then in 5, verse 2 and 3, talks about feeding the flock of God. Again, this is imagery of the people of God. So that theme is consistent all the way through the entire book of 1 Peter, that we are the people of God. And as the people of God, look for another home, a future home. Hebrews 1, 11, verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Our final home, our final destination is not this earth. It is, it is a home that we have in heaven, in the future. And just like the believers in the book of Hebrews, of the hall of faith, we look for the ultimate fulfillment when we will reach that final destination, that final home. But as Christians, oftentimes I think we struggle with our identity, with who the question of who are we, and that leads to, first of all, worldliness, right? Teenagers, well, not just teenagers, all of us, okay? Teenagers struggle with wanting to be like the world, to fit in with the world that is around them. Where does that come from? It comes from a lack of understanding that you are a separate people of God. You are distinct, you are different from the world that, you, that is around you, okay? If you identify more with them than you do with the people of God, 
your heart is going to want to be just like the world. And that is worldliness, okay? As well, we, sometimes we can get hung up on, on politics to where we identify with the political situation that's going on in our world. And again, this is, as Christians, we should be uh, patriotic. We should want the best for our country. And that is a theme in the book of 1 Peter. That's a theme throughout the Bible. But our primary identity is not as a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a Libertarian. Okay? That is not our primary identity. Okay? Another, another identity that we throw in here, actually I've had discussions with Elijah about this where I'll be saying something, but this is what you need to do. And Elijah's answer will be, my generation doesn't think that way about this. Okay, so have you ever heard that before? Uh, my generation, the people I identify with. And it used to be the millennials. Guess what? The millennials, we're getting old. Okay, so it's the Jet Zers now looking at us and saying, you guys are a bunch of old fogies. Okay, so. <clears throat> but our, our generation, our cohort, does not define who we are or our values and our identity as Christians. We are the people of God. And that is the theme that Peter is developing in this text. Verses 3 through 12, Peter praises God. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in this section, he praises God. We call, I call this a doxology of the Christian faith. So he is praising God for everything we have because we are the people of God. Because we are the people of God, we have a lively hope. We have, and in, and in the next verses, we have an inheritance. And then he talks about later, we have a salvation, which the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, but they didn't know anything about because they hadn't reached the experience of it. They didn't understand the fulfillment of their own prophecies. But we have the benefit of living today in these days where we can experience, can know, can understand the truth of all those prophecies that led up to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. And so verse 12 ends, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to. So Peter ends this section saying, you've received the gospel. The Holy Spirit has given the message of the gospel to you today, which is something that even the angels are amazed by. They don't understand it and they want to look into it. And you have that salvation. Wherefore, verse 13, which is where our text begins. Wherefore, gird, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll go ahead and read the rest of the text here. It says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written... Be holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of, of, G, of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope 
might be in God, seeing ye have purified your, soul, your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And we're going to stop in verse 22, even though technically the context goes all the way through chapter 2, verse number 3. Because I want to save that for another message some other time in the future, okay? so, But in this section, Peter is telling these believers how to act like the people of God. If you were to title my message today, it would be acting like the people of God. He gives us a bunch of imperatives, commands, because of the truth that he has just talked about. Again, he says in verse 13, wherefore, the wherefore ties everything he's about to say to what he has just said previously. Because you are the people of God, because you have this lively hope, because you have this inheritance, because you have this salvation, wherefore, what should you do? Do these things. So there are four, there are four points that I'm going to deal with today. The first one is that as believers, we are to hope. Verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in English, we look at this and we see three different distinct verbs, right? But in the Greek, the gird and the sober are actually participles, which uh, means they're not a verb, okay? <laughs> so, and they modify the main verb. The main verb of the text is that, that word, and hope. Verse 13 literally would read, Wherefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober, hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, but what is hope? Hope in America, when we talk about hope, we say, I hope I'm going to be able to go to the ball game tomorrow. Is there a ball game on Memorial Day? No? I don't know. <laughs> so, okay. I hope that I can go to the right? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Maybe it'll be a washout and we don't get to go, right? Hope's kind of wishy-washy in America. But that's not the meaning of the word hope in this text. This hope is a confident expectation. Okay, you could say like such and such a political candidate is the hope for America. Okay, we're confident that he is going to save us all from all the woes of America. And by the way, no political candidate is the hope for America. Only Jesus Christ is that hope. Okay, <clears throat> that is the sense though in which hope is being used in this text. In fact, it's almost synonymous with the word faith that you see throughout the rest of the Bible. It is a confident expectation. It is a trust, a dependence, a solid foundation, and a hope for something because we know it to be true. That is what this hope is here. But now hope is not easy, uh, especially in America. When you're a Christian and you look at all the, all the news, all the politics, all the things around you, it can be easy to become discouraged, right? Currently, we've got the whole Roe versus Wade, uh, Wade thing going on. And yeah, there's some exciting aspects to that for, for Christians. And yet, the way the world is, honestly, it's very hard to have hope that that's actually going to come to fruition and produce positive results in, in our nation. And so when we look at the, at the world politically, we can lose hope, we can be discouraged. But as a Christian, I am not, caused to be pest I am not called to be a pessimist. That is not what God expects of me. I'm called to be an optimist. Now, how, do, how does that happen? It doesn't happen by looking at the political world because I will never have hope if that's my hope, okay? I have to have a right hope. I have to have my eyes on the right things, and then I can be 
an optimist, and it's not going to be easy. That's why uh, Peter uses in this phrase, wherefore, girding up the loins of your mind. Do you guys know what it means to gird up your loins? I was going to have Brother Porter come and wear his kilt that he just purchased and illustrate for you exactly what girding up the loins of your mind means, okay? But back in the day, men and women did not wear pants and dresses, vice versa, or any other distinguishing clothes. They all wore dresses, right? Okay, we, we can take that. <laughs> so they wore some kind of a dress. The difference between them was just length. That's about it, okay? But when a man wanted to go to work in the fields or to fight in a battle or to run a race, he was not going to run in a dress, right? Okay, have you guys tried running in a dress? No, it is not very easy, okay? So, so what he had to do was he had to gird up his loins. He had to take the cloth of his dress and tuck it in through itself, through the belt up top, which would hike it up above his knees so that he could have mobility, he could move, okay? If a man did this, it meant he was getting serious about something, okay? He wasn't going to be tiptoeing through the tulips. He was going to be running a race, right? Okay? So he was getting ready to work. That is the picture that is behind girding up the loins of your mind. In your mind, in your mental image, we are to gird up that mind. And we are to be sober, which means to be serious about it. Hope doesn't come by accident. You don't just accidentally stumble upon being a hopeful person. Well, maybe some of you do. Like I said, I'm, I tend to be more depressed, so I'm the opposite perspective. But some of you are probably the happy-go-lucky, bubbly, laughing-all-the-time type of people, right? But true biblical hope is not an accident. It is something we do on purpose. We gird up the loins of our minds and we be sober. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18 says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our focus, if we are going to be hopeful people, our focus cannot be on the things that we see, the temporal. It has to be on the eternal, the permanent things, the heavenly things, setting our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. <clears throat> the rest of the verse tells us what our hope is supposed to be in, though. Verse 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in this context, Peter has defined grace as referring to salvation. There is coming a day at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ comes physically on the face of the earth, that we will experience the, the end result, the culmination of our faith, our full and final and ultimate salvation when we are face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and we are with him in his glory. <clears throat> and so we are to hope for that, for that coming. We are to look forward to that Christ's kingdom coming to earth and us being with, God, with Christ face to face on earth. That is ultimately our hope. <clears throat> now the second imperative that is found in the text is found in verse number 14 says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay? So the second imperative is that we are to be holy. Okay? Now all these things, they relate to us being the people of God. People, exiles, people of God who are living in another culture, they don't have a whole lot of hope. Also... 
exiles are going to be distinct culturally from the people that they are around. You drive down to Chinatown. Do we have, we have kind of a Chinatown here in Oklahoma. Okay, you drive down to Chinatown. Buildings look different. People talk differently. They eat different foods, okay, because they're of a different cultural background. As Christians, we have a different culture than the world that is around us. We look, we act, we talk differently than they should. And this command to be holy is a reminder that we should be culturally different from the world around us. The people of God ought to be characterized by certain characteristics, and one of those things is holiness. <clears throat> now, what is, what is holiness? Okay, Holiness, I'm going to give you a couple different references. Let's actually go ahead and look at these. Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 11. Holiness has a couple different meanings to it that are included in its general meaning. Exodus 15, verse number 11. <clears throat> it says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now the context, or the, the connotation here of the word holiness is that God is unique. He is different from all those other gods. So holiness carries the idea of being unique, he being different, okay? Leviticus 10, verse number 10, kind of in the same general area of the Bible, so we'll go ahead and turn there. Leviticus 10, verse number 10. <clears throat> it says, And that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. Holiness speaks of distinction, separation, okay? Psalm, actually, let's go to Deuteronomy 7, verse 9 first. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, still in the Pentateuch here. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. <clears throat> says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Did I write that down wrong? I might have the wrong verse there. Okay, let's... Okay, the verse I'm looking for basically deals with the fact that we are, that we are a holy people to God. We are separated, we are dedicated. What is it? Verse 6? How did I get 9? I'm totally, like flipped it upside down. Okay, verse 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So holiness talks about uniqueness. It talks about distinction. It talks about being consecrated or dedicated to God. These people were a holy people unto the Lord. They were dedicated to the Lord. And then in Psalm verse 89, or chapter 89 and verse 35, is our next te text. Psalm 89, verse 35. <clears throat> Psalm 89, 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. Holiness here speaks of moral perfection. 
God's holiness guarantees that he would not lie to David. Okay, so if we were to take all those definitions to get a picture of what is holiness, it is being unique, it is being separate, distinct, it is being set apart to God, consecrated to God, and it is being morally upright and being morally perfect. Now if, I, now if you apply that to mankind, okay, I would say that it is living a lifestyle that is both actively doing good and avoiding evil because we are separated from the world and dedicated to God. That would be my longer definition for the world word holiness. So it involves doing right and not doing wrong, but it involves our relationship with the Father as well. That is an important element of what it means to be holy. So back in 1 Peter chapter number 1. So an essential aspect to living a holy lifestyle is the fact that when we became believers, we became separated from the world and onto God. This has already happened. You have been called out of the world and dedicated to God as a believer. You are chosen by God. You are the people of God, okay? And so because we are the people of God, we ought to be characterized by holiness. <clears throat> verse, number, verse number 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So what, is it, what does it look like to be holy? It says, first of all, as obedient children, okay? Holiness involves obedience. When I tell my child to take out the trash, I want my child to take out the trash, right? I want them to obey me, to do what I told them to do. As believers, we should be doing what God has told us to do. And I think there are a lot of things that we aren't, right? But we ought to be characterized by that holiness that does what God says to do. And then on the flip side, we don't do the things that God says not to do, okay? And he develops that in the next phrase, says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, okay? So do what God wants you to do, but then don't be fashioned, fashioning yourself according to the former lusts. What does that mean? To fashion yourself according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Well, fashioning is the idea of molding something or making something resemble something else on the outside. It's the same word that we see in Romans 12, verse 2. In Romans 12, verse 2, which says, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and quote verses 1 and 2, says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the mold of this world. Don't be jello, okay? You be what God wants you to be. Don't let the world transform you, conform you to its image, okay? He says here, not fashioning yourselves. Into, here's, here's an interesting thought. The world isn't the only one trying to fashion you. Your flesh, your former lusts in this text, want to fashion you into being just like the world. And he's challenging them, don't be fashioning yourself according to those former lusts, those former desires that you had before you became a Christian, okay? Don't be fashioned according to that, in, into that image that you desired in your ignorance when you were lost. Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. So the reason or the source, the basis of our holiness is the fact that God himself is holy, okay? Um, one desire that I have for my kids is that when people look at the shirt kids, they know those are the shirt kids, okay? 
and my wife says they are pretty much all clones of me, so you can pretty, pretty much guarantee that that's at least going to be somewhat true, you know? But have you ever heard, you watch an old movie where a kid's been disobeying his dad, dad says, act like a miller, or, or act like a, act like a, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Daniel, your mind, <laughs> mason, act like a mason, right? Okay? You, the, you want your kids to act like you want them to act like, right? And we have certain habits, certain characteristics that we pass down to our kids. Our relationship with God the Father, as the people of God, the children of God, should be to resemble him in his actions, in his holiness. He says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in how much things? Just some things, just a little bit. Here and there I'll be holy every now and then. I'll be Mother Teresa on Sunday and, and Wednesday and Friday, but the rest of the week I'm going to be Elvis Presley. I don't know, okay. So, okay. <coughs> he says, be holy in all manner of conversation, in the entirety of your lifestyle, all of it. You don't just come to church on Sunday and be a good godly Christian and then go home on Monday and act however you want to. We are the children of God all the time, every day of the week, not just Sunday. So we are to be holy because our Father is holy. We are to resemble him. And then verse 16 says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter doesn't just say, hey, you guys need to be holy. It's a good idea. He supports it with scripture. He quotes God in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11, verse 44, when God says to be holy because God himself is holy for I am holy. So the reason or the source for our holiness is God's holiness. The extent of our, of our holiness is all areas of life. This applies to business. You don't rip people off as a Christian businessman. You don't take advantage of your employees as a Christian businessman. You don't scream and yell at your employees as a Christian businessman. Because you're not just called to be a manager and a boss. You are called to be a Christian boss. Okay, In uh, politics... We support what God supports. And if God doesn't support it, we don't support it. I don't care what party's supporting it, okay? We support what God wants in politics. And then in social media, okay, for the younger ones especially, there are certain ways a Christian should act on social media that resemble the holiness and the character of God. And we need to remember that. Just because you're behind a computer screen with a keyboard doesn't mean you can say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, and act however you want to act because you can get away with it on, on a computer screen. You still have a moral obligation to be holy because God is holy, to be a light, to be a representative of your Father and in the world of social media. It applies to every area of our lives. Okay? And then the example of holiness was as obedient children, like a child that's doing what it's supposed to be doing. We're going to obey God. We're going to avoid the things that are wrong. We're not going to fashion ourselves according to the world's lusts. So as the people of God, we are, first of all, to hope. We are to be optimistic, okay, because of our future in heaven. But also we are to be holy people, be people who glorify God, who bring him glory because we are, are behaving and acting the way he would act. The third thing is that we are to live in fear. And this is going to be a weird one, I guess, but if verse 17 says, And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. He's, now he says, and if ye call on the Father, he's not saying, yeah, maybe you will, maybe you won't. He's saying, if you say you're a Christian, 
That's ultimately what he's saying here. If you're one of those people who calls on the Father, and you are, okay, this is, this is a conditional of confidence here that he's using, okay? If you call on the Father, and you do, who without respect of person judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, this is one thing that it probably would be easy as an exile to do, right? You're surrounded by strange people eating strange things, um, talking in strange ways that don't like you, okay? You're going to be afraid. You're facing persecution. You're going to be afraid. But that's not what Peter tells them to be afraid of. He wants them to realign their fear. Have fear, but have it of the right thing. Don't fear the world. Don't fear what they're going to do to you, what they're going to say about you, but fear God. As believers, we are to fear God. And this fearing God, a lot of times we like to soften it a little bit and say, oh, it's, it's reverence and all that kind of stuff. But actually, it's the word for to be terrified, okay? And if you think about it, I, I, I think of it like this, a snake handler dealing with cobras, okay? He has a healthy fear of that snake, and yet he still works with them, okay? Because he knows that they could kill him. But because of that, he takes proper precautions and he does what he should do, okay? He has a true, a healthy fear, not a fake fear, not a soft fear. He has a real healthy fear because he knows what could happen, okay? In this text, it tells, that why, it tells us why we should fear God. Because first of all, God doesn't play favorites. In verse, verse 17, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. God does not let you have a pass because you are rich or because you are good most of your life you get a pass on everything god is without respect of persons he is just he is right he will do the right thing he judges fairly and evenly that is who our god is and so a proper fear of god is what motivates us ultimately to be the holy people that he's just called us to but in verse number 18 he gives us another reason why we should fear god for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Okay? Why, why would this motivate fear in our lives? Because Jesus Christ sacrificed his own precious blood on the cross to pay for those sins that you are committing. If you truly value and fear God, you will not take that lightly. You will not just live any old way that you want to. Because Christ's blood is precious in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. You were not, in verse 18, you were not redeemed. You were not per, your salvation was not purchased by corruptible things like silver and gold. That which, which you were taught would redeem you in your vain conversation that you received from your fathers. This is one of the reasons I believe the audience of this book are Gentiles. Because they were taught by their fathers to earn their salvation through silver and gold and corruptible things. Okay? But you don't get salvation that way. You get salvation because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, paid you the penalty that you owe, was buried and then rose again on the third day to conquer death, to defeat the penalty for our sins and to offer us salvation. So we should not, we should not take that lightly. We should, we should value, we should fear God because of what he has given for our sins. 
And then also a third reason why we should fear God is because this whole thing has been part, salvation has been part of God's plan from the beginning. God is so powerful, so knowledgeable, so wise that he created the worlds and he had this plan from the very beginning, knowing that you would sin, that you would need a savior. And he ordained Jesus Christ to be that sacrifice before the world was even begun. Verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So who's the who? It's Christ, okay? Christ verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, he was made known, he was revealed to us in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So God made this plan before the foundation of the world, and God, God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead, and he had this plan all along. And by, by Christ, because of what he has done, we believe in God, and we have salvation. And the whole purpose is that our faith and hope might be, God, might be in God. It's nothing you've done. You didn't plan your salvation. God planned it before the foundation of the world. And so we should value, we should respect, and we should honor him. And so we need to live in fear, knowing who our God is. So as Christians, we hope, we are holy, and we live in fear. The fourth point that we're going to look at is found in verse number uh, 20. Let's go and read 21 and 22. Again, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. The fourth command that we are given in this text, as the people of God, is to love one another. The world doesn't love you. They don't. Jesus said that the world world is not going to to love us because they didn't love him, right? We are to love one another because we are all the people of God. Our affections, our, our passions, our relationships should be with the people of God. That is our focus. So verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So the question is, how should I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? In this text, first of all, it is a sacrificial love. The word used here is, is agape, which I will talk about in a second, a little bit later. But one of the greatest examples of that agape love is God himself. John 3, 16, we all know it. Let's go ahead and say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God showed his love by sacrificially giving of himself, his son, to die for our sins. So real love costs something. It isn't cheap. It may cost you time. It may cost you words, it may cost you emotional energy, it may cost you all kinds of things. It could even cost you financially to really love somebody, okay? Real love costs. But in the same text, he, set, he defines it further. He calls it an unfeigned love. What does unfeigned mean? Unfaked. We all know people who come, you come into church and they're like, oh, how are you today? I hope you have a great day. And, and they put on this, this fake smile, they have the fake hair, they have the fake makeup, they have the fake personality, you know? They're, they are feigned. They are fake, okay? 
That is not what we are to have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an authentic love. This is a real love that we are, we are to have. Real love doesn't pretend, it doesn't play games with, Christ, with the other believers in, in Christ. We are to have close, connected, real relationships with one another that wants the best for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then the third thing is that real love is fervent. Verse, the rest of the verse says here, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently. Fervent is the idea of a burning passion, a heat. It isn't, it isn't a sickly, passive type of love. In fact, when, when, I, when I talked about the word agape, a lot of times we define that as that godly, sacrificial love, and that is one of the meanings. However, it's not the only meaning of agape, because actually the Bible says, when it talks about Demas, it says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know what word it is? It's agape. Demas agape the world. Okay, so what is the central idea of agape? It is more of a strong love, a passionate love. Demas forsook Paul. He went after the world because he had this strong desire for the world. That's, that's what motivated him. And so in our love for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, it needs to be something that is a passion for us, a, something that we make a priority in our lives. We don't just love each other on Sunday. We love each other throughout the rest of the week because it is a consuming passion in our lives. So as believers, these things are important as the people of God. Because like I said, the world around us, the culture around us, wants nothing to do with our values, with who we are and who we worship. We need to find that community, that, that, that sense of belongingness with the people of God. And, and in doing that, we're going to have hope. We're going to be characterized by the things that characterize God's character, that holiness. We're going to live in fear of God, and we're going to have love for one another because the world doesn't love us. Somebody has to. Okay, we need to love each other, right? So it's easy for us to fit in, fit, <clears throat> to fit in with everybody around work if we just keep our mouths shut, right? It's easy for us not to rock the boat and cause problems, but as Christians, we are commanded to act like the people of God because this is our primary identity. This is who we are. We are not the people of the world. So as the people of God, we'll live in fear and we will fervently, sacrificially, and authentically love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's go ahead and stand. And Carrie, if you don't mind coming to the piano, we're going to go ahead and have an, an invitation. <clears throat> I know these things are important for me when I'm, when I'm at work at Chick-fil-A. And at Chick-fil-A, you think, oh, a Christian environment should be nice and good, right? It's not. It's not a Christian environment, not really. The people aren't Christians. How can the, how can the environment be Christian? So you go and you live among a people who have different values than you, and we need to be reminded how we should be living at those moments. Let's go ahead and close your eyes, bow your heads. We'll have a word of prayer. And then uh, as the piano plays, if you want to come up to the front to make anything right with the Lord or spend some time praying with the Lord at your seat, or if you just need to talk to Pastor Carsey's or I, you can go ahead and come forward during the invitation. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the encourage, encouragement, Lord, that we have a hope. We don't, we don't have to give up. We don't have to abandon our faith. We don't have to be discouraged because everything is going against what we think should be happening in our, in our world around us today. And Lord, we love you, and because we love you, we want to be like you, live in fear of you, but also, Lord, we love your children because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And just pray that these things would be a reminder for us today as, as we go home and throughout the week. In Jesus' name.